Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Meriwether and Tharp, your source for Georgia divorce. Find them online at theatlantadivorceteam.com. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. Georgia fans are fired up today, and I believe they have every right to be. You may have read the story of DogNation.com. Dominic Riola, uh, the father of the uh, five-star quarterback Dylan Riola, longtime Georgia commit who flipped in Nebraska, was saying that uh, Kirk Herbstreit, the ESPN analyst, allegedly tried to influence Riola to make that decision to go to Nebraska instead of UGA. All of this taking place during an interview with the recruiting website known as Rivals. We have a clip of this. I want you to watch this, and then we'll talk about kind of what this means from the Georgia perspective. Dominic Riola with Rivals. Bring up one guy's name. His name's Kirk Herbstreit. When he saw he saw the smoke. Uh, about Dylan entertaining Nebraska, he was like, called me. He said, dude, is this true? He got to do it. You know, he got to do it. He, he, his affinity for Nebraska, uh, for a guy like that to tell me and to, you know, get behind me. Like I knew, I knew he needed to do it, but I wasn't going to sit here and say, you need to go change that place or be a part of the change at that place. Um, so when Kirk told me that, you know, I was like, man, so that's a Dominic Riola. Oh, and Kirk Herbstreit was saying this, and Herbstreit in the thought, ah, oh, you got to do this. You got to do this. You know, essentially rooting and based on the the, the statement that Riola makes there, attempting to persuade uh, Dominic Riola to convince his son Dylan Riola to leave Georgia and to go to Nebraska. You know, kind of involving himself as a you know supposed you know broadcast journalist, uh, involving himself in this process here. Now, look. A lot of people kind of jumped out of the woodworks on this right when it happened. As I said before, I believe the Georgia fans have you know right to be upset about this, but it wasn't just Georgia fans who were weighing in. College football's hall monitor, Dan Wolken from USA Today, you may remember him from COVID fame, um, he jumped in on all of this, and he had a problem with this, sort of articulating the sort of non-fan-centric opinion, more of the sort of you know sophisticated journalistic opinion. Uh, when Wolken saw what uh, the clip from Dominic Riola, he says, if this is true, this is highly unethical. Maybe it is, but I'm here today to tell you that my reason for being bothered by this is actually not because it's, according to Dan Wolken, highly unethical. Perhaps that's the case. But for me, it goes beyond this. I also had a friend that reached out to me via text who was like, if your headline tomorrow isn't something related to you know ESPN declaring war against UG or something like that, uh, then I'm going to be disappointed in you. Because from the perspective of some Georgia fans, all of this kind of goes along with you know, not just Herb Street influencing recruits to leave UGA, but Pat McAfee kind of uh, mocking Georgia fans on the set of College Game Day, part of the SEC Championship, because as McAfee said, he was upset because he didn't feel well you know, received by Georgia fans when Game Day came to Athens earlier in the fall because Georgia fans were still upset because their guy, David Pollock, was fired from the show. There seems to be a little bit of an anti-UGA vibe around the biggest broadcast entity in college football right now, ESPN's College Game Day. This is maybe even true before uh, ESPN brings in Georgia arch nemesis uh, Nick Saban now as a uh, game day co-host. We'll talk more about that later on the program. 
But believe it or not, my reason for being upset about this even goes beyond that there as well. I don't care the first thing about journalistic integrity as it relates to Kirk Street, nor do I really care about the fact that this kind of is in keeping with a little bit of an anti-UGA theme on a number of fronts when it comes to ESPN's college game day. The ultimate thing to me that makes this an important story for Georgia fans is actually one layer deeper than that. I'm going to try to walk you through why this matters to Georgia fans. And what I'm going to encourage you to do is, is to be on guard for this moving forward. This is the climate around the sport right now. It is a climate that I believe that Georgia's forced to operate in. And I think that it's real. And I think that it's attempting to create some friction for Georgia as a program after a couple of years of unprecedented success of a 29-game winning streak and two national championships and things like that. So, let me kind of go to motive here for a moment. Obviously, I can't get inside Kirk Kerbstreet's head as to why he would think it's so great that uh, that Dylan Riola would leave Georgia, go to Nebraska. Dominic Riola says it's because Herbstreet just loves Nebraska so much. Ultimately, I don't really think that's the case. What I think is actually more likely to be the case is, is as we saw expressed in a lot of different places when Riola did flip from Georgia to Nebraska, that somehow uh, uh, Riola not joining all these other five-star recruits going to a place like Georgia that seems to hoard more than its fair share and going to a place like Nebraska instead is overall better for college football. I can't know for sure that's why Kirk Street wanted Dylan Riola to go to Nebraska, but we have a lot of circumstantial evidence that suggests that might be the case because we had a lot of people saying very similar things when Riola made that flip. I want to show you an example here from Football Scoop. The writer's name is Zach uh, Barnett, not super famous necessarily, but Football Scoop is a pretty respected website. They're kind of famous for having like a lot of information related to coaching searches and things like that. This is, you know, these are not like fly-by-night people, pretty respected football website. And uh, Barnett, I believe his name is Zach Barnett, one of their columnists, when Riola flipped from Georgia to Nebraska, the sort of money line from the from the column he wrote about this was, I don't care one way or the other about Nebraska. I have no love or hate for Georgia, but I desperately hope Dylan Riola flips from Georgia to Nebraska. Here is a, you know, as close as we have to an objective journalist saying, I don't care either way about these two schools, but it's great for college football if 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 Riola doesn't go to Georgia, if he goes to Nebraska instead. And I think that that is at the heart of what Kirk Herbstreit was talking about. Right now, Georgia is a little bit of a bad thing for college football overall for one simple reason. Georgia won a national championship at the end of the 2022 season, 65-7. to The one thing that every force in college football, every corridor of power, everybody with any influence over the sport, uh, all seems to agree on. The one unifying principle around everything related to college football right now is is stuff like 65 to 7 doesn't need to happen anymore. And whatever it is that kind of takes place over a period of years that creates a behemoth like Georgia that's capable of winning national championship games 65 to 7, we need for that to stop. And we need to do anything we can to try to influence or coerce a little bit more parity into the sport. And I believe that's why Kirk Herbstreit was so thrilled about the idea that Dylan 
Alan Riola would change his mind and not be like so many other five stars who've gone to UGA, but would sort of chart his own path and go into Nebraska. At one point in time, there was some chatter about, I don't know if this turned out to be true or not, but like of the top 10 highest rated recruits, they were going to go to 10 different schools. I don't know if that was ended up being true or not, but at one point in time, that was kind of the chatter. Oh, they're finally not all going to Georgia. They're finally spreading out. They're going to other places. You know, Good for this new era of college football. Good for NIL. Good for all these things. If it's keeping all of these players from going to Georgia. Now, you may sound, or you may say, and this may sound, a little bit too much like a conspiracy theory and a tinfoil hat type of thing, the sort of thing that would take place on a message board or fan chatter, social media, things like that. And perhaps as a you know very educated, sophisticated person, many of you are, uh, perhaps this just sort of feels like the kind of thing you can't buy into. Totally acknowledge that. It's a little bit uncomfortable to have these conversations. You sort of feel like you're kind of coded as low class if you if you make the case that so-and-so might be got to get you or something like that. I, I get the, the cultural divide that sometimes separates these kinds of college football conversations. But let me try to sort of bolster my point a little bit more. If I'm making the case that Kirk Herbstreet wanted Dylan Riola not to go to Georgia, go to Nebraska instead, because it's a part of some sort of grand belief that there's too much talent congregated to a place like Georgia, and overall, that's not good for college football. An extraordinary claim like that requires, I think, extraordinary evidence. So let me see if I can kind of push this a little bit more. Herb Street, the man we're talking about right now, made an appearance back during the uh, you know earlier in the winter, around the time the college football playoff on the podcast. Pardon my take. And the discussion was coming up. Now, this is about Florida State and Florida State not making the playoff, even though they were, in the eyes of some, deserving because they were undefeated. They were a Power 5 champion, but they didn't have their quarterback, and they were probably destined to get blown out no matter who they played, evidenced by the fact that Georgia beat them by 10 touchdowns. Well, Herb Street, in sort of making the argument for why he didn't support Florida State making the playoff, said something that I believe is very revealing. And I think the revealing nature of this statement goes beyond just his view of Florida State, but perhaps his view of college football overall, especially as it relates to Georgia and his gratitude that Dylan Riola didn't go to UGA. This is what Herb Street told, pardon my take, I'm going to read it. He says, you know what the average margin of victory has been since 2014 when this thing started? He means college football playoff games. He says, the playoffs have sucked. The average margin of victory has been 19 points. So as a guy who calls these games, Herb Street goes on to tell, pardon my take, I don't want to do the right thing. He's saying this in reference to Florida State, but we would take him more seriously and more broadly about that. He says, they say, if you talk to Bill Hancock and we had all these meetings about this, they're not supposed to do, quote, the right thing. Uh, they're sp- supposed to put the four best teams in the playoff. That's Herb Street speaking to, pardon my take. The part that matters here, though, is is his belief that the playoffs have sucked. The part that matters here is is that a 19-point margin of victory is too large, and therefore he's not interested in doing the so-called right thing. He's interested, you would I think, read into the statement that Herb Street makes there to do anything he could to make playoff games closer. And so, therefore, a team like Georgia, who wins national championship games 65-7 to and blows out Michigan and uh, wins Orange Bowls by 10 touchdowns, therefore, Georgia, just by its mere existence, is not good for college football because it's creating the kinds of blowouts in college football playoff national championship games that Kirk Herbstreit says he's so tired of. Judge for yourself on that. 
That that quote there from Pardon My Take, coupled with uh, Dominic Riola's quote about Kirk Curbstreet not wanting Dylan Riola to go to UGA, do you see the formation here of a little bit of an anti-UGA bias, not because there's any specific hatred for UGA, but because there is a general hatred for the kinds of games that Georgia typically plays? Blowout wins that are all but decided, you know, well before the fourth quarter even gets here. And once again, this still may be a little bit difficult for you to truly buy into, but I want to kind of dovetail this into a conversation we've also had in the past there as well. That this doesn't just show up in the way that talking heads on TV discuss Georgia or columnists write about Georgia or, you know, interactions take place on social media about Georgia. This perhaps is also taking place in terms of what's happening on the field there as well. I find this to be extraordinary. I want to show you this, and you can go search this yourself. I think the best statistical website out there, just for knowing what's happening in college football, is cfbstats.com. Totally free, easy to use. You can just sort of punch in there. You can see whatever you want to, all just sort of simple, basic stats. Now, if you're watching on video right now, this is a gigantic mess. I totally understand. But I'm just simply showing this to you to prove that it exists. If you're watching on video, what you see on your screen right now are the teams that have the fewest number of penalty yards per game, you know, kind of called against their opponents. In other words, uh, when you're playing a game, how, how, uh, how few penalties your opponent has puts you at the bottom of this list. Bottom of the country in terms of opponent yards per game. Guess where Georgia was on that list for 2023? 121st. So Georgia, when it's playing, whoever it was playing for that particular week in America was among the least penalized teams in America. Now, that may seem like uh, an anomaly or, or you know, perhaps a triviality or, or just, you know, a coincidence. Uh, maybe that's just, you know, you know, whatever for Georgia. But I want you to notice here for a moment, look who Georgia is sort of alongside here. Alabama, another typically dominant team, is 119th. You know, once again, very few penalties being called on an Alabama opponent. Big Ten teams like Ohio State and Michigan, they're 114 and 115 respectively on this. Once again, teams that would typically dominate their opponents in the Big Ten, and yet it's almost as if you could read into this a little bit of a thumb on the scale to try to keep those games a little closer if possible. Look who's at the very bottom of this list. It's Texas. Texas was uh, the team that had the fewest number of penalties called on its opponents all year long. Now, consider this for a moment. What league did Texas play in this year? The Big 12. We saw a lot of very open, out in the public for everybody to see uh, uh, friction. I'll use that word again. We saw a lot of open friction between the Big 12 and Texas here this year. Do you think that the the Big 12 wanted Texas to run through the league undefeated in its final year of the league and go to the college football playoff as a lame duck Big 12 team representing the college football playoff? It would stand to reason that human nature might suggest, no, they probably did not. And it might be more than just a coincidence then that Texas had the fewest amount of penalty yards per game against its opponents all year long. And it's also maybe a coincidence, but perhaps not, that Georgia on a per-week basis was treated about like the Big 12 treated Texas, along with teams like Ohio State, Michigan, and Alabama, who were also teams with a little bit of a nasty habit of blowing teams out. So let me kind of sum all this up this way. I do think it's problematic that Kirk Kerbstreet did what he did, perhaps for the, you know, sort of hall monitor thing of, you know, lack of journalistic integrity or the, you know, sort of anti-Georgia spirit that seems to be around ESPN's college game day right now. But I think the actual truth of this is actually one layer deeper than that. 
65-7 is not good for college football. And the unpardonable sin that Georgia has committed is 65-7ing their way to a national championship. I believe it is fairly reasonable to assume that any power in the sport, be it broadcast or otherwise, would work as hard as they possibly could to coerce more parity into the sport and do anything they could to diminish the dominance of a program like UGA that did what it did over the course of a 29-game winning streak. What Herbstreet did with Dylan and Dominic Riola may not be the only example of this we see in the coming years. And if you're a UGA fan, I think you'd be wise to keep your eyes open uh, in the attempt to notice it. My name's Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. We are presented today by Meriwether and Tharp, and glad to have you with us, no matter how you get to us. 945, first and 15, dognation.com, Dog Nation app. 10 a.m. after that, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, or in the radio, Athens Sports Radio, 960 The Ref, podcasts, wherever you find them. Just really glad to have you here today, and man, oh man, so thankful to our friends at Meriwether and Tharp for making it all uh, happen here today. Long time. I mean, close allies of ours. I really love what Meriwether and Tharp does. Now, when I say that, some of you hear that the wrong way. I totally get that. Like you think, well, if I love Meriwether and Tharp, I must love divorce. Here's the thing you got to understand. I don't love divorce. Meriwether and Tharp doesn't love divorce. No one really loves divorce. A divorce is a, a very, very tough, challenging thing. But here's what I do love. I love confronting reality. I I love dealing with the hand of cards you've been dealt the best way you possibly can. And that is what Meriwether and Tharp sort of understands, that for some people as sort of, you know, I guess unpleasant as this is to consider, for some people, the notion of divorce is just an unavoidable reality. You have tried to come up with an alternate plan. You've tried to fix the relationship you're in, and it's just not working. Well, if that be the case, our friends at Meriwether and Tharp are really the source you want to turn to because we say they are your source for Georgia divorce. And if you visit their website, georgiadivorceteam.com, you're going to see this for yourself. You're going to see all the ways in which Meriwether and Tharp sort of exists to serve you. They've got all kinds of free resources, blog posts and podcasts and things like that. And you can engage with a free initial consultation with one of their attorneys there as well. And one of the things you've been hearing me talk about there for a while is there are also some, I think, really interesting ways in which they're trying to alleviate one of the biggest concerns you might have about divorce, which is the cost certainty you're seeking in this process. All kinds of options. One of these I'm going to highlight for you in particular. They call it the model M&T, which I just think is an incredibly, uh, I think, valuable way to kind of go through, uh, you know, know, this process in terms of the value they provide to you there as well. Because you can do this via like a payment plan or like a subscription service, which may sound a little bit weird, but I think is actually really creative for as long as the divorce price is ongoing, you can sort of pay this on kind of a monthly basis, getting the service from them with a little bit of a cost certainty and a little bit of just sort of an understanding of kind of exactly how that price is going to play out. You have an entire menu of options you can look at there in terms of how they can serve you during what may be a difficult and challenging time for you. So please find them online. It's GeorgiaDivorceTeam.com. That is GeorgiaDivorceTeam.com. Meriwether and Tharp, offices uh, in 
in Savannah, coming soon in Athens and places like that. They really are now your source for Georgia divorce. All right. I'm glad to have you here on the program today. It's Terrence Edwards coming up in a moment. Prior to that, though, uh, uh, I want to go around the doghouse and I want to keep the conversation going that we were talking about a moment ago and perhaps give you another example of how this sort of shows up. So if you've been watching on video, listening to the radio, maybe miss some of the other other stuff. Let me just sort of reset it this way, that our issue with what Kirk Herbstreit did in relationship to Dylan and Dominic Riola was you know, seem to be openly cheerleading for the idea that Georgia, who's kind of hoarded more than its fair share of success, would give some of that back. And we'd see a little bit more parity show up in recruiting, and perhaps that would sort of influence what also happens on the field. And we gave you some examples of why that might be kind of, you know, playing out that way. Let me give you one more thought on this. The other day, the other sort of top analyst in college football, Joel Klatt, who I think does a pretty good job at Fox was doing his regular show. And one of the questions he was asked during this during broadcast, you know, you sort of do a little Q&A stuff, you know, that was, um, who are the teams that didn't make the college football playoff in the 10-year history of the event that could have won the national championship? And he mentioned TCU from 2014. You'll remember them excluded, uh, uh, you know, in favor of Ohio State. He mentioned the Ohio State team that was left out the following year. And then he also got to Georgia from this past season. Now, the language that Klatt uses in speaking about Georgia as being a team that was left out of the playoff that, uh, that, that could have won the national championship, I find to be really noticeable, and especially in the context of what we're saying right now of people who seem to be a little bit happy when Georgia doesn't quite have uh, more than its fair share of success. Listening to Klatt uh, here from Fox talking about you know Georgia not making the playoff, but they could have easily won the uh, national championship. Here's Joel Klatt from this week. The last one, and this one's obvious, and I know everyone's going to be like, well, duh. Last year's Georgia team, 2023, back-to-back defending national champions, 29-game win streak, lose a game to Alabama in the SEC championship game, get left out of the playoff. That's a team that absolutely could have won the national championship. In fact, they they would have been Michigan's most difficult matchup in the country, but they didn't go and Michigan won the national championship, but that's, they were number one all season, 29 straight wins. That's an easy one. Listen to that language. That's easy. Georgia easily could have won the national championship. It's so obvious. Clatt says that he says, duh, of course, everybody knows this. They absolutely could have won it. They would have been Michigan's toughest game. And for the most part, what Joel Clatt's saying there is self-evidently true. But do you remember December? Do you remember that period of time? Do you remember that how 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 unwilling almost anybody was, including some Georgia fans, by the way, but more broadly, nationally speaking, how unwilling anybody was to even have the conversation of, well, Georgia did win 29 straight games. They only lost one game by three points. Maybe should we consider Georgia over a team like Washington that plays in a league that no longer exists and a team like Texas that has so little respect for its league, they're uh, you know bolting at the end of the year or a team like Michigan, who had a coach that was suspended for two different things during the season. Do you remember how unwilling almost anybody was to even give that argument a fair hearing, that it was really not even a discussion point? Do you remember that? And yet, a guy like Joel Klatt, who's objective and you know smart, looks back on it and says, well, of course Georgia could have won. Georgia would have been Michigan's toughest opponent. And yet, somehow, the team that would have been Michigan's toughest opponent didn't even get consideration for the college football playoff. All I'm saying is, just notice it. Just notice it. 
Notice how quiet that chatter was at the time, but how loud, at least in the person of Joel Klatt, that is right now. And put that in the same context of Kirk Herbstreet being tired of blowouts and Kirk Herbstreet being tired of all the five stars going to Georgia and other people you know, having their feeling about this too. If we could we'd just get rid of Georgia, we'd have a lot more fairness in the sport. Everything would be just more fair if there was no Georgia. And perhaps wonder who's doing what behind the scenes to make sure there's as little of Georgia as possible. It's at least worth considering. And that is around the doghouse here today on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Meriwether and Tharp. And one of my favorite times of the week, a chance to talk to a true all-time great there at UGA. And we'll do that. The, the great former Georgia wide receiver Terrence Edwards joins us here today on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Meriwether and Tharp. Athens and across the SEC or wherever the recruiting trail may lead, here's a DogNation.com insider. So Terrence, I always appreciate your opinion. I'm always glad to have you in the show. Love you showing off the Mountain Vernon stuff. Uh, before we get into the uh, the UGA talk, how's it going here? You're kind of in that transition period, of course, still basking the glow of winning a 7A state championship there at Milton. By the way, Milton going to play uh, Buford to begin the season next year. That's a big time matchup. But uh, but also kind of moving into that sort of head coach period there as well. Uh, how's that uh, continuing to go for you? Still not there full-time yet. Still uh, at my full-time job. So trying to pull double duty at my full-time job and my now full-time job as the head football coach at Mount Vernon. So it's, it's been a transition, can kind of smooth. So I'm excited still. Uh, ready to get to work. Um, I should have asked you this last week. I, I, I honestly kind of forgot to, but is the bubble work still going on? I mean, obviously you've made a, your bones and been a great individual coach. Now that you're doing the uh, the head coaching thing, are you still able to do the individual coaching work, the sort of bubble work you like to do during the wintertime? How much of your time is still available for stuff like that? Oh, most definitely. This week um, was our first week back, so we had a bunch of kids in there on Monday and Wednesday last night, so it's still in full effect. You know, I have Ron Veal as the quarterback coach and one of the best DB coaches I've been around, TJ Heat. So we collaborate and uh, have a good night of, of training. So, Terrence, uh, to shift gears back to Georgia here for a moment, you know, you're a smart guy. You're a level-headed guy. A lot of times I'm sort of prone to emotion <laughs> or whatever else. A lot of Georgia fans not happy today that uh, apparently, according to Dominic Riola, Dylan Riola's uh, flip from from Georgia to Nebraska was attempted to be influenced by ESPN's Kirk Herbstreet. You know, what do you think about this story? Do you think it reflects a little bit of an anti-UGA sentiment on the part of you know Herbstreet, on the part of ESPN? There's obviously the McAfee thing from December, the fact that David Pollock's no longer in the show anymore. What do you make of the relationship right now between Georgia and ESPN's College Game Day? Well, I saw it and kind of thought that was strange that a, a uh, pundit would call uh, a, a father and tell him to switch his commitment or however it went down. Uh, but then I have to go in and question uh, the Riola family is what if, if you are easily swayed by someone who has uh, outside of your family dynamic to say, man, you need to do this. Uh, so that lets me know that Georgia was not in their heart completely. If Georgia is not in your heart 100%, then you don't need to be there. Because I, I have heard plenty of players say that, you no, know, Georgia is not for everyone. So seemingly it wasn't for him and yeah. uh, good luck to him and his family. And I think we got the quarterback of the future. Uh, I've heard so much uh, awesome things about the quarterback that we do have, Ryan, 
And um, I'm waiting to see him in the spring game and go and see some spring practice. So the reports on him have been outstanding. But uh, I, I just don't understand why a, a ESPN pundit would get in Bob, like Kirk Hershey allegedly has done. Yeah, and in defense of Herb Street, at least a little bit, I'll say this is. You know, I don't expect Herb Streak to be anything other than a human being, right? And as human beings, you know, you have other human relationships. And a lot of times those human relationships will sort of supersede just regular football. And, and Terrence, you know, as an analyst yourself, I know you kind of have some of that kind of stuff too where, hey, you know, you're a Georgia guy and you come on here and you talk Georgia football, but you've got friends who played other places. You've got, you know, current players at other programs that you worked with closely. And those human relationships sometimes supersede just favorite teams or alma maters or, you know, even your job in some cases. I mean, you know, football analysts are human beings there as well. And I'm sort of fine with if Herb Street in his heart genuinely wants Ryle to go to Nebraska instead of Georgia. In, in a weird way, I'm sort of okay with that. I don't really get into the journalistic integrity part of, you know, uh, that conversation. That doesn't mean a lot to me either. But I do think it's interesting to consider why it is that that Herb Street might want Ryle not to go to UGA and whether that's in keeping of what seems to be in place right now, which is for a lot of people, Georgia's had a little too much success, a little bit too much winning, a little bit too much in the way of hoarding top talents and recruiting and perhaps making the sport a little bit boring. We've, we, we've heard that chatter here over the course of the last couple of years. Same teams always winning, same, you know, this. Well, you know, this year the recruiting rankings had a little bit more parity to them. The even though Georgia was number one still, the the college ball playoff certainly was a little bit more parity than it's been before. And a lot of people, such as Herb Street, seem to be kind of happy about that. And to me, that's what kind of matters here. The sort of potential anti-UGA bias that shows up on the basis of people just get tired of Georgia winning so much, it would seem. Right. So let me tell you how I've handled and I had to handle this situation last night with a player that called me and asked me for my opinion about their recruitment, about schools. I've always gone into a situation and I leave my Georgia bias out of the whole situation and just give them the pros and the cons. Uh, If they seek advice, we just talk through a lot of situations. But at the end of the day, my last statement that I leave with these families are – this is your family, this is your child, and you have to make the best decision for you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and try to sway you into a situation that I think is best for you because if that situation does not work out, I'm not going to have you come back to me and say, you told me to do this. I'm not. You're not going to have that over my head. You're going to make this decision as a family, but I'm just going to kind of help you and guide you and give you the pros and the cons about the situations and I and I say at the end, but this is your family decision. You make the best decision for your family. I'm just here to help you guide and navigate you through this whole uh process. And that's why I think for me, uh it went left because you can't sh- and shouldn't tell a kid or family where they should go because if it doesn't go right, they're gonna look at you in a different light, yeah. in my opinion. And the anti hate for some reason. I just don't think Alabama have gotten this hate from the media. So I don't understand why Georgia is getting the same anti-hate as we're putting it, uh, because Alabama has definitely been the, the king of college football. And right now, it seems like Georgia is trending that way and why, you know, people don't want us to continue to be at the top of the hill. Maybe Hershey, uh, because his playing days, he didn't get the opportunity to beat Georgia. And he, we saw Ohio State then. Uh, lost against us the last time we played. So it could be that by the, mm-hmm. you know, him personally not beating us when he had opportunity to beat us. 
But I think the point you're making is a good one. And, you know, I had sort of thought this, too. And I don't really know how to explain this. And so, therefore, I didn't really mention it. But I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up. My perception is, and perhaps my perception here is just wrong, is that something about Alabama's emergence and Nick Saban's emergence as what we all kind of call the GOAT, somehow that proved to be comforting. And, and I don't want to say people liked it when Alabama kept winning, but – you know, I do think there was this, you know, thought of, well, this is college football as it's supposed to be. Nick Saban keeps winning. And by comparison, the emergence of Kirby Smart, and as I said before, I am totally open to the idea that my perception of this is not quite reality, that maybe I'm just seeing this in a, in, in a skewed way. I, I acknowledge that full flow, you know, you know, uh, f- you know, fully uh, voiced here. But something about the emergence of Georgia as quickly as it is, that Kirby's sort of solving the sport too quickly, that to certain powers that be, that feels like more of a threat than someone like Nick Saban, sort of the establishment power, Kirby Smart, a little, little new money, a little nouveau riche in some ways, that something about this is rejected in a way that Alabama's hoarding of success for the period of time that took place sort of seemed to be celebrated a little bit more. And maybe that's not true, but Terrence, I'm right there with you. That is sort of the sense that I get a little bit. Oh, me too. I, I didn't and haven't seen or heard this type of anti-Alabama throughout the national media. Uh, maybe there has been that I haven't seen that none of us have seen, but it is a it is you know out there the anti-hate for Georgia for whatever reason and maybe our perception is our reality and maybe we may be overblowing this but if it's if it's walk like a duck quack like a duck it's a, a mongoose as they they would say so um <laughs> I, I don't understand it I, I think Kirby is going to use this and I continue to hope that the, the anti-hate you know fuels Kirby Smart and the Georgia Bulldogs program uh because he always always is using things as far as recruiting and ways to get his players to believe that we're the underdogs, even when we're the better team. I want to shift gears. I I think the Carson Beck story this week has been pretty interesting. I talked to Jake Fromm about this yesterday. It seems like there's a little bit of a cultural divide here of, you know, if you're in your 20s or younger or, you know, around that age, you know, the idea that, oh, Carson Beck's got a Lamborghini truck or whatever it is, like an SUV type thing, that seems like the coolest deal in the world. There are some people who are kind of our age who might be like, oh, I don't know that I want that kind of glitz and glamour on the program. This is supposed to be kind of a blue collar, work pale type of deal here. I'm kind of somewhat in the middle from the standpoint of overall, I think a football team is supposed to be about hard work and, you know, you know, toughness and whatever else. At the same time, I think there's a little bit of room for a little pizzazz here and there. And the idea that you got a quarterback who's, you know, sort of living the spoiled life that, you know, quarterbacks are kind of sometimes expected to live in a roundabout way, that could end up being kind of a good thing for George. I think within the locker room, there's an expectation that quarterbacks are going to be treated a little bit differently than perhaps some players, other positions are going to be. So I'm not really anti back in the Lambo overall. I'm a little skeptical of some of the reporting about it, but not anti back Lambo overall. What do you make of all the attention Carson Beck and his vehicles gotten here this week? Yeah, I personally don't believe he purchased the vehicle. Yeah. That's just my opinion. I don't know. I don't have any facts with that. I just my personal opinion. I think it's there's either a lease opportunity sure. or some form of NIL deal that he will promote the company uh, that he got this vehicle from. So I don't believe he actually purchased this vehicle. But I also believe that if you go out and uh, play the the type of football that he has played. This with NIL, in my opinion, is is therefore to reward those guys that have been successful on the field. And I've been talking to some of my ex teammates and past college players, and 
we're just jealous right now, to be honest with you, yeah. uh, because, you know, the, we we couldn't get a, a hamburger from someone without <laughs> being a NCAA violation. And now, you know, kids are able to, you know, get rewarded off their likeness. And I had a conversation with a guy like, I'm okay because my brother was a was a first-round yeah. pick, and um, he bought me a, a Cadillac Escalade when they came out. So I had a you know, a flashy car at that time that my birth, my brother purchased for me. And I can remember boss Baylor had to have a car that champ purchased him. Uh, so we had those type vehicles at that time, but it was just not normal for everyone to have that type of car. And it seems like now in college football, that is the thing to do. And I'm okay with it. If you go out and you, you play up to your ability and you earn the right to have those type of deals, then you you should be able to go out and get whatever you want. Yeah, I totally agree about that. And you know, like you said, you know, you go back to your era. You know that that's before like cost of attendance adjustment that kind of took place. I think about ten years or so after you played. And I don't know about like Pell Grant stuff like that, but you know, kind of pre NIL, post the era in which you played. I think players had a little bit more folding money in their wallet than they perhaps had had before because <laughs> there was just some more ways to sort of get that cash. And like you said, you had a brother who was a first-round pick, so you had access to money. It sounds like you had a really nice car. But as far, and I don't mean to get into your business here, so you don't have to answer this, but as far as like – money to to you know go to georgia square mall and buy something if you wanted to or like you know go over to a restaurant if you didn't want to eat in the cafeteria you know how are you doing as far as just sort of like this just sort of basic stuff that like you said if i were to walk up to you and give you that when you're a player i would have been considered i would have been considered to sort of an ncaa violation how are you as far as just having a little bit of folding money in the wallet just sort of go around and you know just buy something if you wanted to i could tell you this randy mcmichael and i were roommates in college and there was a lot of times where our lights was cut off oh wow and there's times where <laughs> there's times where there's times where uh we were at the grocery store and we had to put back some things uh it wasn't like that all the time but i wasn't just calling my brother up asking for things because he was a first round uh, draft pick so i i tried to uh manage my money from the pale grant I, I didn't get pale grant at the time so okay. just the scholarship money that that I received trying to manage that in the best way I can and my parents was hard working parents so they would send me money uh but the pale grant like you said was was the thing you could tell when people got their pale grant because you saw a lot of new things around for his clothes and shoes and people just was excited to get that $2,500 Pell Grant and uh, clothes reimbursement and, and, and books reimbursement. So different time, different era. So listen, we can all debate about what the NIL era is becoming and is it going too far or whatever else. And there's re- re- reasonable room for discussion. I can't have a thousand dollar receiver putting stuff back in the shop and in, in, in the supermarket. Like, like, like the, the the idea I can't get the twelve pack, I gotta get the six pack, or the idea that I can't get the extra large bag of Doritos, I gotta get the whatever. I, I can't have a thousand yard receiver having to put stuff back. Like, like, like we can all agree that that's not something about that just doesn't quite seem right. Yeah, and I think a lot of times we just didn't know how to manage money that yeah. we got. I think that was probably the biggest thing is we didn't really understand that. Uh, you know, those bills are coming regardless. They don't really care about your circumstances. If you created those bills, they're they're going to come. So I think it got to the point where Randy and I didn't really understand how to manage the little money that we did get. Um, and, yeah, there was times where we had to put some stuff back. Wow. So uh, it, it taught it definitely taught us a valuable lesson, I think, now as, as adults, uh, how to really manage your money, uh, not live above your means, 
So yeah, we are definitely grateful for those times. It was the best time me because Brandy is one of my best friends. Sure. We went through it to get. We went through it together uh, as two college football players, and we now we definitely understand the, the really the value of hard work and, and valuing your money. No, that's great to think about. Let me squeeze in something else before we go here. Uh, obviously, National Signing Day was yesterday. It almost gets overlooked because it's just not what it once was, and you know now all that kind of happens in December. I think December is sort of a weird time to do that because. We're signing our players in college football before our draft picks are leaving and before the transfer portal is over. It sort of seems like we as a sport kind of do all this in the wrong order. Plus, it's Christmas. It's college football playoff. It's like, why do we have to do everything in the same like three-week period? Um, it sort of feels like whether it's February or not, the best time for signing day is something other than December the 20-whatever. It just seems like a weird time to have this in light of the rest of the college football calendar. Do you have an opinion on this, Terrence? Where do you think National Signing Day or the signing period, if you want to have a multi-day deal, which people mostly don't use, uh, you know, where do you think signing day should fall on the calendar? I, I don't understand and know why truly we have two now. I could go and research and understand it, but I had a conversation with one of my best friends yesterday. We just talked about the lure of the February signing day back when we was coming out and he signed with Alabama and I signed with Georgia out of Washington County. I can remember everyone, even the fans going to the bus mirror and waiting on those yes. to come in and how such it was a big thing. Um, and we just don't do that anymore. We don't, we don't go over to the bus mirror and as fans and wait to the facts come in and names come out like, and, we just that was that was fun. I, I think that was entertaining to the fans and the lure of signing day now is just not there anymore. And and another conversation that we had were with my Alabama best friend uh is we used to just argue about who had the best signing classes yeah. and yesterday we, we didn't argue. I called him up and say, Man, we don't even argue about who I has know. the best class for one, because those five of those kids are going to transfer out next year. So we can't get excited <laughs> about these kids anymore until their third or fourth year because you don't know who's going to be actually contribute yeah. to the success of your program because they transfer out so easily. So I, I don't even get, I don't even get excited about them no more until they actually step on the field and contribute uh, and, and to wins because the transfer port is so easy for guys who, there for one year to transfer out and not really understand or fight for anything. So the the, the trash talking about Sunday Day is just not there anymore. Hey, real quick before we let you go, I haven't done a ton of Super Bowl stuff this week. You got a thought on the Super Bowl early pick here for you on Kansas City, San Francisco right now? I, I don't. I try to go with who has the most Georgia players on the team. I like it. Who I know personally. I know 49ers have Chris Conley and Charlie Warner. Yeah. I don't know if I'm missing anybody. Then – uh, I know those guys, but I know me cold. Robert Bill too, right? You know? Bill plays the Robert 49ers. Bill, okay. Yeah, yeah. But I know me cold personally. Like mm -hmm. I have a relationship with him, had one for years. So I'm pulling for him again. And and this is just off the cuff. I like Andy Reid. Never met Andy Reid. He just seemed like somebody that's yeah. a likable coach. So um, I'm I'm, I'm kind of upset with Shanahan because of the way he called the the Atlanta. Super Bowl with 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 against Tom Brady when it was up twenty eight three. So I just go through and just find crazy ways to pull forward up team. But uh, probably me cold because of my personal relationship and I want Andy Reid to get another one.
I think that's great stuff, Terrence. Really good. And I'm glad to hear the bubble work is still ongoing. I know how valuable that is for the players who are part of that. And if people want to kind of connect with you and be a part of that, Terrence Edwards Wide Receiver Academy and the stuff that you're doing. Obviously, Ron Veal out there working with those quarterbacks there as well. How can they get in touch with you? You can find us on all social media platforms. Uh, that's Terrence Edwards Wide Receiver Academy. Terrence, great stuff. Thanks for your time. I, I appreciate the conversation. We'll look forward to doing it with you again soon. Thank you. Let's take a look around the rest of the league. This is SEC Through. Yeah, I love Terrence, man. Really good. And interesting thoughts there on the Super Bowl. I'm sure we'll probably do more of this tomorrow, I'm guessing. I think my general thought is, and this is a very, very simplistic take, I sort of think the Chiefs need a little bit of a heat check here. I mean, think about the magnitude of of the result. If, if Kansas City wins, right now they're a small underdog. If Kansas City wins, then like Patrick Mahomes like legitimately is in the conversation for like greatest quarterbacks of all time. We measure quarterbacks oftentimes by championships, one games one. And when you look at the prolific nature of Mahomes as a as a winner, like he's moving into like another category as quarterback if they win this game there on Sunday. And plenty of people obviously think that they will. To me though, this seems seems too much too soon. Just a, just a little bit too much too soon. The idea that we're now kind of getting ready to start putting Mahomes in sort of a parallel to a, to a Tom Brady or, or getting closer to that, a little too much too soon. On the flip side of that, as uh, Terrence mentioned, you know a lot of you know folks here in the state of Georgia who are Falcons fans and also Georgia fans, you know they don't have a lot of great love for Kyle Shanahan because Shanahan made some very questionable calls at the end of that Super Bowl when obviously Atlanta choked away the the, the historic lead and ultimately led to a to a New England victory there. But that aside, Kyle Shanahan's still a, a really good coach. And, you know, this notion that he's been knocking the door, made the game a couple of times, hasn't gotten the win. You know, it just sort of feels like, you know, the idea we're now going to view a guy like Shanahan in the sort of Marv Levy category or something like that. Or, you know, what Andy Reid was sort of thought to be in Philadelphia before he came to Kansas City, a guy who just couldn't quite get over the hump. I think Shanahan's a little too good of a coach to be dismissed that easily. So it just sort of feels like, you know, not deep analysis here. I'm not drawing anything up on a, on, on a whiteboard for you here. I'm just telling you, it just sort of feels like the narrative is kind of calling for the uh, San Francisco win. So that's where I sort of am as you move towards Sunday. We'll get to that. How about cruise around the SEC, though? Courtesy of Royal Caribbean. As we said to you uh, a lot this week, the excitement continuing to build for our Dog Nation cruise coming in up in April. We want you there. We want you to be a part of it. It's going to be unlike anything we, we, we ever do. Because really, one of the great things about the Dog Nation cruise is, I kind of think of it as like sort of Dog Nation summer camp because we're lucky enough to interact with a lot of folks in our audience on a regular basis. But oftentimes, those are kind of short conversations. You know, we're brief event we may have in public or a little bit of interaction via social media or the streaming platforms or something like that. But a Dog Nation crew is something a little bit deeper than that. It's a little bit more relational than that. And honestly, some of the people that I've gotten to know from our Dog Nation audience on board, uh, you know, the various Royal Caribbean cruise vacations we've taken with them are, are some of the people that I, uh, you know, you know, still consider to have you know great relationship with here right now. You really get to know a lot of these folks really well, and I can't wait to get to know you on board Allure of the Seas here coming up. And as I'm saying this, I mean, take a look at how good Icon of the Seas looks right there. You're talking about just a beautiful, you know, overlook, uh, you know, and uh, just a wonderful way to sort of experience, you know, the the ocean, the majesty of all of that. I remember, you know, walking around and enjoying this on Icon of the Seas, how, how truly special that was, this area. They call it the Overlook. 
just an absolutely beautiful, beautiful area. And it's the attention to detail like this, if you're watching on video and if you're listening to radio podcasts, I'm sorry that you're not seeing this, but it's the attention to detail like this that just makes the ship so impressive. And we just enjoy enjoyed it so much. And you're seeing the Surfside neighborhood right there, which is one of the things I think is really cool about Royal Caribbean right now, which is the efforts they're taking to make the experience as family-friendly as possible. I don't think anybody does a better job serving families on vacation right now more so than Royal Caribbean. So whether it's Dog Nation Cruise, your trip on Icon of the Seas, whatever else, Jessica Slater wants to help you. Give her a call, 770-718-9147. That's 770-718-9147. You can also email her, jslater at dreamvacations.com. All right, so let's uh, go cruising around the SEC here for a moment. Let's talk about Nick Saban on ESPN's College Game Day. So I'm not you know, necessarily proud to admit this, but I believe it's true. I think that Nick Saban's going to be sneaky good, at least based on some of your expectations here on this show. I think Nick Saban sometimes has a little bit more personality and wants to let on. A lot of coaches are that way. And I think we get a relaxed version of Saban probably on TV. I think he's going to probably be pretty good. I sort of don't want him to be good. I'd love nothing more for him to sort of clam up and freeze up and you know, stumble and stammer his way through a segment. I'd, I'd love for that to be the case. Uh, but I probably won't get my wish. I'm sure they'll be working with him to train him a lot over the course of the offseason, and I'm sure he's going to probably enjoy that. Now, I do have some questions. You know, you know, maybe the idea of any kind of sort of integrity from ESPN is long since out the window, as we talked about off the top of the show today. But, you know, there was a big deal made after Saban retired from Alabama that he was still going to have an office there and still all this kind of stuff. Like, is he still working in some capacity for Alabama while also working for ESPN? How's that going to go? I mean, you know, ESPN's got, you know, reporters that essentially work for Alabama as it is. But but in the case of Nick Saban, like that would seem to be taking things a little bit too far, I, I, I would I would say. So I, I do believe it'll be fair to wonder, you know, how um, pro-Alabama Nick Saban might be in a, in a situation like this. You know, a lot of the broadcasters, like, say, Greg McElroy, for instance, that's an Alabama quarterback. But McElroy, like a lot of these guys who wants to be a, a professional broadcaster, you know, they a lot of times make a big show of how like neutral they are, objective they are. Herb Street's kind of gotten in hot water with Ohio State fans before. David Pollock at times probably gotten in hot water with Georgia fans. When you want to show your objectivity and your fan base that sort of thinks of you as one of their own, they'd always love that. But that's younger broadcasters trying to do this for a living. Nick Saban's, you know, essentially playing the back nine here. Uh, you know, he would not necessarily feel as much of a motivation to do that. So therefore, you know, does he use this to sort of prop up his own legacy to Alabama and perhaps further you know, that legacy with his you know predecessor there with uh, um, uh, Kalen DeBoer, whatever his name is, um, uh, Kalen DeBoer. I, I think it's probably worth kind of examining that a little bit closely to see if that's the case. The the comparison that comes to my mind, this is maybe not a good one, but, you know, a lot of people sort of felt like when Mike Krzyzewski, the Duke coach, when he became the head coach of USA Basketball, and we don't do a lot of basketball around here, so we don't particularly care, but a lot of people within the basketball circle sort of felt like that Coach K was sort of leveraging USA Basketball to actually – impact Duke, using that as a recruiting arm uh, for Duke. You sort of wonder if a guy like Nick Saban could potentially do something similar with the with the platform he's going to have on ESPN's College Game Day. I, I don't know. It's probably worth watching, though. I wouldn't put past anything when it comes to ESPN here right now, based on some of the discussion we had a little bit earlier. Greg Sankey, yesterday, the SEC commissioner, was on with Paul Feinbaum, trying to give an explanation as to exactly what the purpose of the partnership the Big Ten currently has, uh, you know, with, with the SEC Big Ten partnership, what the purpose of all this uh, right now is. And I have to say, even after listening to this, 
I'm still not exactly sure what this is all about. And anytime we have a discussion of, and thank you on Feinbaum yesterday, there was a lot of oh, serious issues facing college athletics. The thing that I'm still sort of begging somebody to do is to, to give me a very simple but specific description of exactly what you think the problem is and exactly what you think the best remedy would be if it could be done. Sometimes, you know, the best possible option is not available to you, so you have to move back to second best. But if pie-in-the-sky idealistic thinking existed, what would be the best overall solution? That's the thing I think we're missing from this discussion here right now. I've said before, you know, to me, if I were asked the question that I, you know, just asked, I would say it's how do you fairly compensate players? Clearly, they deserve some compensation, just given the the revenue that exists around, you know, college football in particular. How do you do that without losing what has definitely, you know, made college football what it is? And there are some people that don't care about that. There are some people who are like, pay the players, and if the structure collapses in the attempt to do that, so be it. We would say the culture ball as an institution has so much value that you would want to protect the institution while also trying to be fair to the players that are in there. That's the way we would articulate this. How do you fairly compensate without completely reinventing a different sport? There are some people who seems like, you know, creating a different sport other than culture ball seems to be their main objective. We would say our main objective is the exact opposite of that. But when it comes to like that kind of clearly articulated message from leaders like Sankey or is it Tony Petiti, is that his name, the Big Ten commissioner? We don't hear as much of that. And I don't think we quite heard that from Sankey on the Feinbaum show yesterday. Uh, back on the field here for a moment, Billy Napier spoke as a part of uh, National Signing Day yesterday. And Napier acknowledged a couple of things that I thought were kind of interesting. Thing number one is, is that um, uh, there is the possibility there could be some offensive sort of play-calling changes there at Florida, but not really a new offensive quarter coming in, just maybe a little bit of a shuffling of responsibilities from the program overall. Clearly an acknowledgement that things at Florida need to be better. He said that. One of the things he said, I'm paraphrasing here, is that when it comes to some of the what they haven't quite gotten in recruiting, that if they can just have some more success in the field, that's going to kind of unleash them to have more recruiting success. I think it's fair to point out, though, and I'm not trying to like you know pick nits here. I'm just pointing out an obvious truth is that Napier was brought to Florida because unlike, say, a guy like Dan Mullen, Napier had spent time around programs such as you know, Nick Saban's in Alabama and was supposed to have some sort of understanding of the kind of recruiting apparatus necessarily to actually win games in the field. You, know, you saw the famous team picture of Florida uh, before the 2022 season when it's like you get all the players lined up here, and then around them you've got an entire army of like golf shirts standing around them that are supposed to be people to kind of aid with the sort of process of talent acquisition. All of a sudden now it's being recast of – Instead of, I'm here to recruit so we can win games, it's like, well, if we can just win some games, we can start recruiting better, which is essentially what the last three Florida coaches have said. And from a Florida fan, I would be sort of skeptical about that. The other thing that I thought was kind of funny is, a lot of you know Austin Armstrong, the Florida defensive coordinator, this time a year ago, he was a revelatory fine. This was the future of the sport. And he's still going to be the Florida defensive play caller here this year, but they brought in other guys like, say, Ron Roberts, former uh, Auburn defensive coordinator. And the job he's going to have is to, quote, coach the coaches. In other words, uh, he's going to be a little bit of an over, a little bit of oversight here in terms of how the Florida defensive game plan works. And that while, uh, you know, Austin Armstrong's not exactly getting the keys taken away from him, it sounds like he's getting a little bit more of a chaperone there, a little bit of more of a oversight over the defensive game plan. Armstrong, who is very young and at times sort of looked more like a back of the house guy than a front of the house guy. Um, you know, it seems like he's getting a little bit of extra oversight. So even the one thing that Florida fans were excited about, maybe now they're not quite as excited about as they were. Interesting stuff coming out of Billy Napier yesterday. And then 
I'll just sort of wrap up the signing day stuff uh, here for a moment too. So, you know, perhaps you know the, the big news we talked about with uh, um, uh, uh, you know Texas A Texas A M was the big win yesterday. You know, they got you know the the five star athlete who they were holding on to the commitment to. Uh, they end up getting the wide receiver. We talked about that. They had a chance to add him yesterday. So probably nobody added more yesterday. Than Texas A&M did. Uh, Alabama also held on to Ryan Williams. You know that was the story of the receiver who uh, kind of uh, sort of decommitted uh, in the hiring of Caitlin DeBoer. People thought he was going to Auburn, and then he kind of came back to the Alabama class. So Bama can claim a victory there yesterday. But as Terrence Edwards talked about, for the most part, all of this yesterday just ends up being a pretty quiet national signing day overall. Not a ton going on there. But a couple of stories worth giving you there, and so we'll give you that. Alabama holding on to Ryan Williams. A&M picks up a couple of names there. LSU held on to uh, one of its uh, you know bigger-named uh, commits, and that's about it as far as National Signing Day is concerned from yesterday. Uh, we'll give you a couple of Georgia notes there, here, though, on the uh, way out the door. First of all, Georgia basketball. I'd say the wheels have come off. And I can't take the blame for this one this time because there was no Georgia basketball in the set. We weren't hyping this up bandwagon style. We just sort of let them do their thing in Starkville last night, and it did not go well. Admittedly, that's the case. And, you know, obviously this is a season not over, but in terms of Georgia's relevance in the SEC basketball conversation, that is clearly over. And it's a shame, too, because if you watch, like, the Iron Bowl basketball game last night between Alabama and Auburn, you're reminded – this sport in this league can be really fun. We're all football people here. You know, um, a lot of folks sort of gravitate towards basketball as a last refuge where their football team's not very good. But that doesn't mean that basketball isn't a ton of fun. And when you watch Alabama and Auburn and the intensity around, you know, their, their meetings, you're left to conclude, man, if you're Georgia, you'd love to be a part of that. And right now, that's not the case. We thought this might be a better Georgia team. I think it still is. But they're clearly not living up in the second half of the season to the promise they showed in the first half. Here's all I would tell you is that if you're a Georgia fan and your sort of enthusiasm for Georgia to be better was ignited when Georgia was playing better, don't let that die. This team is fizzling, but don't let your enthusiasm for how much fun it could be if Georgia was better, don't let that fizzle. Because I do think Mike White's recruiting better than Georgia perhaps maybe ever has, or certainly has in a long time. And I do think eventually, I guess, I mean, it's bound to change at some point in time, right? Um, I do think eventually Georgia will be a little bit more of a relevant presence in the college basketball landscape. We'll always be a football show. That's what our audience wants. But that doesn't mean we couldn't enjoy a little bit more you know, basketball during this time of year. And we thought we were there. We thought we were going to have something a little bit more entertaining. Not quite happening right now, but that doesn't mean the future can't still be bright because – Anything's possible, I guess. Uh, one more note. Speaking of uh, signing day, you know, Georgia did add what looks like a pretty impressive preferred walk-on yesterday. We'll uh, give a shout-out here um, to uh, Jeremy. I like the nickname here. Jeremy Flight Bell uh, joining, that, uh, joining up with Georgia yesterday. Obviously, we talked before about Georgia's ability to really be as good as any program when it comes to really deep, enhanced scouting efforts and, and, and investigating all aspects of anyone who has a chance to make the program better. Georgia's clearly done well from these ranks in the past. And so Jeremy Flight Bell on his way to UGA will give him some congratulations as kind of the lone signing day story, uh, you know, for Georgia there. And with that, we'll wrap up today's program. Golden Shoe Wise, uh, a repeat winner here. And I don't know that anybody utilizes the sort of AI technologies out there better than our buddy Sugar Ray. Now, <laughs> some people won't be happy about this, but I think it's really funny. So you got Kirk Herbstreet, Crying Face, 
uh, from some years ago. <laughs> Fans going crazy. You see Carson Beck trying to chase him down. Then you see Pat McAfee over in the corner there. Georgia player trying to ch- chase him down. Um, <laughs> Sugar Ray says, next time he comes to Athens, let me know. I'll kick that butt with all nine of my previous golden shoes. Hashtag make that 10. Sugar Ray's a very, very talented guy, obviously. Uh, all in good fun, of course, when it comes to Kirk Herbstreit, but pretty funny stuff there. We'll give Sugar Ray a golden shoe for that today. Lousy, stinking gators. No such gifts for them. 1188 days from now. Uh, that's how, actually, that's how long it's been since uh, Florida's beaten Georgia. And who knows? 1188 days from now, maybe they still haven't beat Georgia. Anything's possible in that respect, too, I guess. Either way, hope you have a great day. We'll look forward to seeing you back here tomorrow. Dog Nation Daily, presented by Meriwether and Tharp.